Welcome to our 36th podcast and the 106th as a City on a Hill Church. On this Thursday evening study, Pastor Mike opens the fourth chapter of Philippians and finishes this wonderful book. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul urges all of us to be united, joyful, and in prayer for one another as we carry each other's burdens and become a family in Christ. Pastor Mike has entitled this message, Peace for an Anxious Heart. Here is Pastor Michael Clark. All right, so Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. It's uh, very poetic the way that, that Paul speaks. Paul is uh, uh, certainly a man's man, no doubt about that. He's a tough guy, uh, and, and he's endured a lot of, uh, of, of uh, physical pain, actually, just for the sake of, of being a Christian, being a, a preacher of the gospel in his culture. Um, and yet he has such a tender heart. And I would imagine that that is not how he was before he was saved, when he was Saul of Tarsus running around trying to kill all the Christians and tear down the church and the churches uh, there in Jerusalem. But it's, it's, uh, it is a characteristic of, of, of Christ where you would have this love that just kind of emanates from within you uh, that we see exuded here in Paul's writing. It's, he calls them his beloved brethren. And that would, that would be one who is, who is loved, who is loved uh, greatly. And he, uh, uh, he sometimes uses the word uh, yoke fellow. Sometimes he uses the word bond servant. Other times he uses the word beloved. But all of these are phrases of, uh, of close intimacy with these who would be reading this letter and those who were part of the early church. I have a good friend who's uh, out on the central coast. He's a pastor, actually. He's, he's not pastoring anymore, but he pastored for many, many years. Matter of fact, I ordained him uh, uh, out at Calvary Chapel uh, over on Highline. And uh, his name is Beto. And he, he and I, he would always call me one of these names. He still does. He'll call me and he'll go, Beloved, you know, I'm just calling to see how you're doing. Or he would call me Yoke Fellow, uh, you know, or Brethren. And, and it, it, you know, it's, it's just kind of funny, but... Uh, for, for him, he means it. I mean, he, he, he means, just like Paul means it here, uh, my friend means that toward me. He saw me in that way. I see him in that way. And uh, it is something that we uh, find in the church among the family of God, the brothers and sisters in Christ, that, that we often have a much closer, uh, intimate relationship with the people of God in the church than we do in our homes in our neighborhoods, at our jobs, uh, and, and sometimes even within our own families. And that is because the church also is a family. We are brothers and sisters uh, in Christ. As a matter of fact, Jesus uh, speaks about this in Mark chapter 3. I'll read this to you. Jesus was, was speaking, and the people were getting upset at what he was saying and it would appear that Jesus' family wanted to come and rescue him from what they thought was a potentially dangerous, escalating situation. Um, uh, and, and they wanted to kind of 
uh, pull him out of there. We read in Mark chapter 3, verse 31, it says, His mother, that would have been Mary, and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him, and they called him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about on those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Notice he never said my father. But uh, it, 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 is, it is interesting that um, they were worried about Jesus. They were concerned because uh, tempers were flaring. Jesus was, uh, you know, was speaking, and there were those who were getting upset with him. They were saying uh, in verse 30 that he had an unclean spirit. Uh, and, and so Jesus was standing there, and he was speaking unafraid, unashamed, and his family thinks they're going to have to go and, and, and just extract him from this scene. And it is interesting that it's mentioned that Jesus has other brothers, uh, which will shoot down the idea that Mary was a perpetual virgin, as uh, the Roman Catholic Church teaches today. That they didn't always teach that, but it is a doctrine today. I was raised Roman Catholic, and that's what we were taught, that the Virgin Mary is an eternal, perpetual virgin. She uh, had Jesus as a virgin, and then she stayed a virgin, and then she ascended into heaven uh, when Jesus ascended into heaven. And, of course, that's not biblical. It's not scriptural that Mary ascended into heaven. Mary was a human being. She was not God. Uh, she was a woman who God chose to bear the Messiah. She was a virgin who uh, 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 conceived by the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ. But um, Mary isn't, isn't perfect. She's not sinless. She never claimed to be perfect or or sinless. Um, it, 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 it is an interesting thing here that she did have other children that are recorded for us in the scriptures. And so it, it should shoot down the idea once and for all um, that, uh, that Mary was an uh, eternal, perpetual virgin. But his family was here. They were trying to help him uh, by getting him out of this situation that was intensifying and Jesus just blows them all away. They, they think that he's going to want to go with his family. They're like, Jesus, your, your mom's out here. Your brothers are out here. They, they want you. They're calling for you. You know, they need you. Go, go, go to them. And Jesus uh, says, you know, who are my mother? Who are my brothers? And he, he makes this radical statement. Behold, my mother and my brothers, speaking of those who were his followers, and, and tells us whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister. And my mother. And so we have this uh, family of the church, and it is a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And as such, um, we are to uh, love one another, we are to care for one another, we are to speak the truth and love to one another, uh, we are to be there when we need one another. And, and, and that is all part of being a Christian and being the family of God. Unfortunately, a lot of times the churches can be very contentious places. They could be just like homes in the sense that there's conflict and there's jealousy and there's competition uh, and there's envy and there's strife and all of these things, and it ought not to be that way in Christ's church, in the church that Jesus 
uh, purchased with his blood, that he founded with his death and his burial and his resurrection, um, if he uh, is our brother, and if God is our father, and I love God, and I love Jesus, and you love God, and you love Jesus, then we have that in common, and that should affect how we treat one another in the body of Christ. If I love the Lord and you love the Lord, then we should love each other because we both love the Lord. And we should be thoughtful of one another and considerate of one another. Uh, and, um, and so it's a beautiful thing when the, the church operates as a body and operates as a family um, appropriately and correctly. And it's a terrible thing when that is not the case. It, it really mars uh, uh, the church of God when there's tremendous conflict within uh, the local church and, and it's a bad testimony then at that point of who Jesus is uh, rather than a, a good testimony of who Jesus is when we love one another. He says here, therefore my beloved brethren, brethren whom I long to see, my joy and my crown. And so he, uh, he had joy in this church. Paul was a spiritual father to this church. He planted this church there in Philippi, the, the ones that he's writing this letter to. Uh, he wants to see them again. Historians tell us that he never got out of this Roman dungeon. He never went to go back to visit these churches. Um, and so he didn't get to see them again, at least not uh, at that time, he would have seen them again later in heaven. But it was his heart to want to see them again. And he, he called them my joy and my crown. They literally brought joy to his heart. And if you've ever led anyone to Christ or you've ever had the privilege of ministering to someone and you get to see the Lord doing a work in their life and they're maturing in the Lord and you get to see them growing up in the faith, it, there's just no greater joy uh, than to see people who you had a hand in ministering to just kind of getting on their way with the Lord and, and going from glory to glory and having testimony after testimony of what, and you have some little part, some little share in that story, in that life of that believer. Uh, it, there's really no greater joy. Uh, this is also what John uh, said about uh, those who are walking in the truth in Third John, First, Second, Third John. 3 John chapter 1, there's only one chapter there. In verse 4, John says this, the beloved disciple. He says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. And so he, he like Paul, saw these believers as his spiritual offspring, his spiritual children. He was like a spiritual father to them. And so uh, it, it, this is something that Chuck Smith used to write. I have a, a, a picture that, that was with Chuck, and I had him sign it at a conference one time, at a pastor's conference, and he wrote this on there. He wrote uh, 3 John 1, 4. I have no greater joy than this to hear my children walking in the truth, a proud spiritual father. Not only does he say that you're my joy, but he calls them my crown. And so uh, th they were like trophies of God's grace. Uh, that's how Paul saw them, trophies of God's grace. And, and really, that's how God sees us as Christians. He sees who we were, he saves us, and then he sees who we are and who we are going to become as we become more like his son. 
and we become trophies of God's grace that God can point to us and, and say, look, look what I did for this individual. Look how I saved this individual, how I worked in this individual's life. Uh, and we can't take the credit for it, but God gets to brag on us uh, as we are um, yielded to him and we become those who are surrendered to Christ and, uh, and are then living for the Lord. There's just no greater joy, and it's, it's, like, a, it's like a treasure to God. It's like, a, it's like a crown. So he tells him, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Verse 2, I urge Judea and I urge Sintiki to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now perhaps these two uh, women who he's referring to, you, you, uh, Yodia and Sintiki or Sintika, uh, to live in, in harmony, perhaps this is who he was referring to back earlier in the letter when he said this in chapter 2, verse 1, he said, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by be of this, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And so the reason Paul would have included that in his letter is because this is what this church needed to hear, that there were some people that were not doing this. They weren't loving uh, by being of the same mind. They weren't united in spirit. They weren't intent on one purpose. Uh, there, there wasn't harmony and affection and compassion. Um, it, it, rather, there was selfishness and empty conceit that was taking place in this church. And so uh, we already looked at that back in chapter 2, but uh, Paul is, is now encouraging uh, these women to live in harmony. Live in harmony in the Lord. Verse 3 again True comrade, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so uh, there were those who had actually uh, entered into the struggle with Paul, he says, in the cause of the gospel. They've shared in my struggle. They were part of the sacrifice Paul was not just doing this alone. You know, no, no man, no person uh, can do a work of God alone. It's not possible. There, it takes a whole group of people to come alongside a man. Uh, if a man is called to pastor a church or someone is called to the mission field um, or, or to just go out and to do ministry in the community or in the hospital or uh, in a senior center or whatever it is, someone who's called, you have to have people who are there struggling with them, that are encouraging them, that are supporting them. Perhaps there are financial needs uh, that need to be met, as Paul is going to address here in a minute. 
uh, that this church was meeting the financial needs that he had, the costs of ministry. Uh, no one is alone. No one is, is, is out there on their own during, doing the work of God without others putting their hand to the plow and entering into that ministry, even if it's behind the scenes. That's the only way that ministry happens. None of us are an island. No man, no woman uh, can go off on their own and, you know, and, and do this great work of God all by themselves as a Lone Ranger type of a Christian. It just doesn't happen. We're a body. We need one another. And those who are called to certain positions of leadership or more uh, of the, the visible ministry, they couldn't do it. I couldn't do this without those of you who come alongside me and undergird me with your prayers, with your support, with making sure the church happens, with the finances coming in so that we could pay the bills. On and on it goes. And Paul recognizes this, uh, that there are those uh, women who shared with him in his struggle, in his uh, ministry for the cause of the gospel. He mentions here the book of life, whose names are written in the book of life. And that really is the main goal. I mean, the idea of, of making converts is really not a biblical concept of just making converts of people, getting them to say a prayer and then you're done. Um, that's really not scriptural, uh, even though someone generally does have to say a prayer or, or have some sort of a statement or confession of faith in surrendering their life to Christ. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and, and you will be saved. And so uh, there's nothing wrong with having people say the sinner's prayer or leading them through a prayer or encouraging them to say a prayer and make a confession of faith. It's a good It's a good you know, thing for us to do with people. But that's really not where, what we're called to do as Christians. We're not called to make converts of all men. We're called to make disciples of all men. That's the great commission that Jesus gave to us. Go therefore into the whole world and make disciples of all men, of all nations, uh, teaching them to observe all that I command you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And part of, of us making disciples and us being disciples of Christ, uh, is that at some point our names are written in this book, in the Lamb's Book of Life. And it's, it's very relevant and significant to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life because that's what's going to determine who gets to go to heaven and who doesn't get to go to heaven and has to go to the lake of fire according to the book of Revelation. Because none of us deserve to go to heaven, guys. Even if you have lived a, quote-unquote, perfectly righteous, in your mind, sin, sinless life from the time you were 23 years old or something like that when you got saved or 24 years old or 18 years old or 15 years old, you say, well, I've, I've just been serving the Lord, living for Jesus since I was 15 when I gave my life to Christ at this uh, youth camp or what have you. Um, you still don't deserve to go to heaven and neither do I. We deserve to go to hell. And so uh, your works are not going to get you or keep you saved. It's not by our good works that we could earn our place in heaven. It's by faith in Jesus Christ, by trusting Jesus Christ, and by basically allowing Jesus to be the Lord of your life and the Lord of my life. That is called discipleship. Uh, we read in, the, uh, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, 
Jesus says this about uh, the, the book of life, our names being recorded. Luke chapter 10 and verse 20, Jesus says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits or the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Speaking of our names being written in the Lamb's book of life. That's the main thing. That is what is going to determine your eternal position for all eternity, whether or not your name is found in the Lamb's book of life. Now, there's an interesting warning that Jesus gives about this in the book of Revelation uh, in chapter 3 as Jesus was uh, speaking these letters to the the seven letters to the seven churches that were in Asia. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 4, as Jesus is uh, speaking to this uh, church in Sardis, he says this, You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Very serious sort of a warning from Jesus. Uh, to people who would begin to take him for granted and begin to think that it just doesn't matter how they live their lives because they said a prayer at one point when they were 15 years old or when they were 18 years old or or whatever, some event in the past, and they think that that was just enough uh, to get get in the door. And and Jesus is saying, you know, um, uh, those who walk with me, who have not soiled their garments, they're worthy, they're overcomers. He says, I'm not going to erase their names out of the book of life, indicating that there would be some whose names are erased out of the book of life or blotted out of the book of life as, uh, as uh, we read back in the Psalms. So uh, it, it is a very uh, interesting thing. It's a, it's a very serious thing. It all ends uh, up in this heavenly scene, and these books are open, the Bible says, and Uh, depending on whether your name is written in the Lamb's book of life uh, will determine where you end up spending eternity. Uh, We read this in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. The great white throne judgment. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so it's very serious, this idea of those having their names written uh, in the Lamb's book of life. It literally is is what will determine our eternity. And so, um, you know, we're not saved by, by our deeds. And I don't believe that we, the church, will be here uh, at this judgment. I think that we are at uh, a different 
uh, judgment, which is the Bema Seat of Christ, which is a reward judgment where God is going to give out uh, rewards for those things that we have done for Jesus in this life. It's called the uh, Judgment Seat of Christ or the Bema Seat of Christ. And so I don't believe that, that the church and, and the born-again Christians are going to be here. But, but this is like a law room. It's like, it's like a scene in front of a judge uh, you know, that is going to make a proclamation or a judgment of innocence or guilt. Well, everyone is guilty. You and I also would be guilty of sin, so we wouldn't deserve, based on our goodness or our righteousness or our piousness, to get into heaven. Um, so all of these that are here that are being judged by the things written in the books, the deeds that are recorded of their lives, are, are really, they're not going to have a leg to stand on. They're not going to have a defense before a holy God. How could they defend their sins against the holy God? How could they say, we don't deserve to be separated from you for all eternity? They're going to actually agree with God uh, that they, they Every mouth is going to be stopped. They're going to agree. We don't deserve to go into heaven because we are sinners. And the evidence is here in these books, uh, these deeds which are being judged. So it's all going to come down to whether or not one's name is found written in the Lamb's book of life. Because Jesus then took the death. Jesus took the punishment that you and I deserve. And instead of punishment, we get grace, we get mercy, we get forgiveness. We have reconciliation with God because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you don't want to accept Jesus as your salvation, you don't want to accept Jesus' forgiveness that he offers you freely, you think you're good enough to go and stand before Almighty God and to get into heaven based on your own self-righteousness, the Bible would say you have no chance because God is perfect. And unless you're perfect, you're not going to end up there with him for all eternity because only perfect people are going to be in heaven or people that are made perfect declared perfect by jesus christ who has imputed and given his righteousness to us because we recognize that we don't have any righteousness of our own we need his righteousness we need his salvation his forgiveness his grace his mercy we can't earn it we don't deserve it and that's the way that we are allowed into heaven to get to spend eternity with a holy and beautiful and perfect God who is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 23, we read this about heaven, the heavenly scene. And the city, this is the new Jerusalem, has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb, Jesus. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life over and over again. That's the key, guys. Make sure that you're born again. Make sure that you're a disciple of Jesus. Make sure that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Back in Philippians 4 and verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. 
And uh, he has said rejoice again and again, hasn't he, in this study, as we've looked at. Uh, he's mentioned this to them, and he's exhorted them uh, over and over again to rejoice in the Lord. No doubt because they were probably discouraged, and they were probably uh, struggling, and maybe they were persecuted and dealing with persecutions. And so uh, he is encouraging them to rejoice in the Lord. We can't rejoice in ourselves. We can't rejoice in this world. This world's a mess. Uh, we can't rejoice uh, in our health because our health eventually will fail us. We can't rejoice in our jobs or in our bank accounts um, because that has a you know, tendency, a propensity to get wiped out with something that's out of our control. And, uh, and, and yet we are called to rejoice in the Lord always. And that is something that uh, God, if he commands us to do something, that means it's possible to do something. He wouldn't command it of us and repeat it over and over again if it was something that we couldn't do. We may not be able to rejoice in our circumstances. We may not be able to rejoice in the things that we're dealing with in our lives. There may be nothing to rejoice in in your circumstances that you're facing right now, but you can turn your eyes on Jesus and you can find joy in the Lord and rejoice in the Lord. Jesus has saved you. He's conquered death. He's written your name in the Lamb's book of life. You know, what is there to be depressed about? Uh, you know, yeah, you're going to die and you're going to get sick and you may lose everything and lose everyone you love in this life, but this is really not all that matters. What matters is the life that is to come. Anybody that's, that's lived, you know, a few decades in this life will tell you, uh, it, it's, it's, it goes fast and there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of suffering and there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of regrets. You can't rejoice in this life, but you can always find joy in the Lord and in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Verse 5, he says, Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men, for the Lord is near, or literally the Lord is at hand, probably speaking of his coming, because Paul was often uh, reminding them that Jesus Christ is coming again. He didn't just go to heaven to stay there. He went to prepare a place for us, and he's going to come again to receive us to himself so that where he is, we will be with him also. And so he is telling them to... Um, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. Now, forbearance is really one of the characteristics of God. It's, it's another word for being long-suffering, long-suffering or patient in afflictions. And it's very difficult to forbear or to long-suffer if you're really suffering and you're really suffering long. It's hard to do that with joy. It's hard to do that with peace. It's hard to do that with hope. And yet that is what we're called to do. Sometimes, uh, you know, forbearing is just dealing with, with difficult people in your life, maybe even in your own home. And you, you have to continue to suffer long uh, at your job or suffer long in your home uh, or, or suffer long uh, with those who have been estranged from you. And, and, you know, there's no easy answer. There's no quick solution 
There may never be a, a solution in this world, and yet you are called and I am called and commanded uh, to let our forbearing spirit be known to all men. That is part of what is modeling for others our faith in Christ, that we're, 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 we're different than everybody else. You know, you take away uh, everything from your life that you love, and then uh, you really find out who you are. And other people find out who you are. And sometimes we're really surprised by who people are. We thought differently of them. Oftentimes, we are very surprised in who we are. We thought differently of ourselves. And yet, um, the Lord is good, and the Lord is uh, long-suffering with us. He's patient with us. He forbears uh, with us. And so we also are called to forbear uh, with others and to lo suffer long uh, for others and with others. Because the Lord is near. His coming is soon. It might be today that he comes back. And uh, I, was, I was at this event earlier for my, my job with the county and talking to a sister uh, in the Lord who used to come to, to the church many years ago. And, um, and she was saying, you know, um, things are so hard and things are so challenging. And she goes, you know, uh, I just hope that the Lord is just going to come back soon. You know, and I said, yeah, that's what we've been saying for 2,000 years. You know, I mean, I, I, we, we, we all feel that way. And that's good that we think, you know what? I just have to get a little bit further down the road. I just have to keep going and keep taking one step after another and put one foot in front of another through this very difficult time because you know what? The Lord's coming is soon. His coming is right around the corner. He could come back today. He could come back this very moment uh, for his church and then it's all going to be all right. It's all going to be made fine and, and beautiful uh, in God's timing. Or you'll go on to live 60, 70, 80, 90 years and then You'll die, and your, this body will be uh, put back into the ground, back to the dirt, and your spirit source to go to be with Jesus. So whether he comes for us or we go to be with him, it's not going to be that long, guys. A day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day, and time really does uh, fly by. Verse 6, this is some of the most beautiful, encouraging scriptures in all of the New Testament here. Be anxious for nothing. I'm just going to read several verses and then we'll go back and look at them individually because it's just a beautiful uh, uh, series of promises here for the Christian. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension or understanding, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. Very powerful uh, um, promises of God here in this text, in this portion of Scripture. As a matter of fact, uh, Philippians chapter 4, uh, these, these passages here, these Scriptures, uh, are some of the most encouraging, really, for a believer who's going through a difficult time. 
for someone who is struggling, for someone who's dealing with death or dealing with loss uh, or dealing with sickness and disease. Um, it, it, this, this just has so much encouragement here for the believer. So again, verse 6, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, so contrast nothing with everything. So whatever you're facing today, the Lord would say, don't be anxious over it. For nothing, for anything. Don't be anxious over anything. Or worried or stressed out. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so he's giving us the antidote here for anxiety and for fear and for worry. Be anxious for nothing, but here's the solution so that you're not going to be anxious, so you're not going to be worried, you're not going to be stressed out in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. You know, um, worrying absolutely solves nothing. Fear accomplishes nothing. You know, you could be afraid of the dark. You could be afraid of losing your job. You could be afraid of, you know, losing your health or afraid of getting cancer or afraid of dying or afraid of getting into a plane crash or afraid of getting into a car accident or afraid of a recession or afraid of the stock market crashing. Or, I mean, you could be afraid of a dictator taking over uh, uh, power in the White House and turning us into a communist nation. You could be afraid of aliens coming from outer space. I mean, all this stuff that's out there that people are afraid of. You know, you could be afraid of the boogeyman. You could be afraid of ghosts. You could be afraid of demons. You, you could be afraid. You could just spend your whole life being afraid of everything, being afraid of spiders and being afraid of, you know, uh, uh, cockroaches. I mean, there's, there's, there's so much that people fear, all these phobias that people have, and yet it accomplishes nothing. There's no purpose for fear. There's no, no, nothing that's valuable uh, in your life, as, especially as a Christian, uh, to, to fearing or worrying about things that you have no power over or you have no control over. What could you do about it anyways? If somebody were to break into your house or if we were to get hit by a nuclear bomb or if there was a giant earthquake and it swallowed the state of California. Uh, you know, all of the fear, even if that happens, what is all your worrying and fearing about it going to change anything? It's going to happen if it's going to happen. And it's, we're not called to be fatalistic and comme si, comme ça, you know, uh, c'est la vie, whatever will be, will be. Uh, we, we, we have to be realistic but we, we're not called to be afraid because we trust that God is in control. We trust that the Lord is on our side. We trust that God has gone before us, that he knows the end from the beginning. We trust that we have promises in the word of God that we can stand upon, that we can cling to and claim as his children, and that as a father, he is going to take care of his children. No matter what comes, whatever will come uh, our way. Fear and anxiety profit you nothing. As a matter of fact, what it will do for you is create problems you didn't even know you had before. And it's interesting that, you know, the enemy is very crafty in stirring fear among the population and anxiety among the people. You know, he doesn't even have to 
make good on the things that he gets people afraid of. He just has to get them afraid or, you know, get them worried and get them anxious. Then they're, they're not going to sleep, and then they may, you know, have high blood pressure, and then they're going to need to go get on medications, and, and then there's going to be side effects from the medications, and then they may need to go to therapy, and, you know, and, and in the end, none of it may even happen. And, and so what good did it do us? The enemy is the one who's trying to sow seeds of fear into your life, into my life. And the Lord says, don't be fearful or worried or anxious about anything. We trust that the Lord is good, that the Lord is sovereign, the Lord is in control, and that God is love. It's who he is. And so therefore, if God is love and I'm in his hand, then I could trust that whatever the enemy throws at me, whatever people can do to me, it will not be able, they will not be able to separate me from my bond of love with God and his love for me. And that's all that matters, guys. That's really what counts. But we have to continue to remind ourselves of these truths because you're not going to hear this out in the, in the news. You're not going to hear it in the media. You're not going to hear this in the television, on the radio, unless you listen to Christian radio or the movies in Hollywood. You know, they make money off of sowing fear and discord and dissension and division into our culture they make money politicians get elected by making you afraid of the other guy that's how they get you to vote for him and if you're not afraid maybe you're not going to go register to vote so they want you to be scared they want to upset you so that they get you to vote for them or or for you to buy their product or to watch their programs or or what have you and and paul is saying we should be anxious for nothing the lord promises that he is going to take care of all of our needs he is going to provide for all of our needs and therefore we don't have to worry we don't have to fear we don't have to be anxious by everything in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving Let your requests be made known to God. And so the antidote for anxiety and, and for fear would be to pray. Spend time with the Lord. Let your petitions come before God. Supplications. Tell God what it is that you're struggling with and what you're worried about. You know, once, once you enter into uh, prayer and you enter into communion and harmony and fellowship with God and you, you know that God is there and that God loves you. He loves you enough that he sent his only begotten son to hang and bleed and die on the cross for your sins so that you could have fellowship with God. He could bridge that gap that your sin caused you to be separated from God. He sent his son to die. Uh, that, that is how much he loves you. And when you enter into uh, prayer and fellowship with the Lord and then you, you realize that he cares about what you're facing, and he's big enough to, to handle what you're facing, uh, then you could start to thank him. Even though you can't thank him for your circumstances, your present surroundings or your present circumstances, maybe there's really nothing good that, that you could see that's happening right now, but you could still thank him for who he is. You could thank him for sending his son to die for your sins. You could thank him for giving you his Holy Spirit to dwell within you. Thank you for giving you uh, a Bible that you could read in your own language so you have God's word to speak to you anytime that you want. You could thank him for other brothers and sisters in the church and in the body of Christ at large and in the local church, 
you know, we, we have so much. We can thank him that we live in the greatest country in the history of the world. Uh, we can thank him that we live in the most prosperous generation of the most prosperous nation in the history of the world. There's a lot of stuff we could be thankful for, guys, if we just uh, take our eyes off of our problems and the things that the enemy is, is getting us worried about and fearful over and putting our eyes on the Lord. And then we begin to uh, bring our requests to the Lord. And, and as we bring our requests to the Lord, then the Lord begins to appease our fears. He begins to calm us to where we don't have to worry. We trust and say, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I'm trusting you. Uh, even if it's not what I want, even if it's not the thing that I think that I want that I'm even praying for, I'm still going to trust you, Lord, that no matter what happens, you're still good, you're still my God, I'm still in the palm of your hand, and no one can snatch you out of uh, my hand, Jesus said. Verse 7, he says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, again, if you're anxious for nothing, you can always go all the way back to verse 4. If you're rejoicing in the Lord always, if your uh, forbearing spirit is known to all men, you're long-suffering, you're patient, you're not anxious for anything, uh, you're, you're taking everything with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving uh, uh, with your request to be made known to God, then, as a result, a result of doing all of that, then the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension or understanding, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So then you're going to have God's perfect peace that will come upon you. Not a, a peace uh, as a result of your circumstances, but oftentimes a peace in spite of your circumstances. It's a supernatural thing. Most people fall apart when one little thing doesn't go their way. You see someone, you know, whose life is just falling apart and they still have the joy of the Lord, the peace of the Lord. You know, there's something, there's something different here about this person and about this God and about this Jesus and about this people, this church, these people of God. They're not like everybody else. And that is something that the world is searching for. They're searching for through counseling and through... Uh, drugs and, and all kinds of things to try and find peace, to try and have their fears, uh, you know, tamed and, and their anxieties and their worries allayed. And, they, and they, they can't find it. They can't find it. And yet Jesus offers it freely to anybody who will come to him. You just have to surrender your life fully to him. And you have to come to a place where you trust, regardless of what you see, you trust that the Lord is good and the Lord is on the throne. If you do this, he says, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and your minds. The heart would deal with your emotion and your, the mind would deal with your thoughts. And so often that's where we get just hammered by the enemy is with our emotions, how we feel, and with our thoughts, what we think. And the enemy knows he can get to people in their mind and he can get to people uh, uh, through their feelings and through their emotions. And, and, uh, and yet we're told that the peace of God will rule, will guard, will protect your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus uh, if you do these things. 
Verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute or has a good reputation, if there is any excellence, so anything that's excellent, anything worthy of praise or praiseworthy, let your mind dwell on these things. God has given us so much clear instruction here to deal with fear, worry, anxiety. Um, if we would just grasp it and we would actually do this when we are fearful, when we are struggling, when we are worried. So whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's anything that's excellent, anything that's praiseworthy, let your mind dwell on these things. You have to take your thoughts captive. You have to control your thoughts. You, you can't let your thoughts run wild. You can't let your emotions control you and just be overwhelmed by your emotions. You have to allow the Lord to guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, and you have to turn and focus on other things. So oftentimes, it is a result of the voices of our culture as I was saying earlier, that leads us to insecurity and fear and anxiety and anxiousness about things that are way out of our control. And so, and so what can we do about that? We could decide what we are going to focus on. It's like, it's like food. If you want to eat junk food, you're going to get sick. If all you eat is junk food all the time, you're going to die eventually. It'll kill you through heart disease, through diabetes, through, you know, all cancers and all kinds of things. You want to destroy your body by feeding yourself junk all the time and not eat nutritionally or have nutrition uh, in your diet. It, you're going to die eventually. Your body will die. The same thing is true with spiritual food. When you are feeding upon worldly carnal media, worldly carnal television, worldly ungodly news and uh you know uh talk shows on the radio or, or youtube channels and, and and all it is is negativity and and fear-mongering and you know and and hatred and anger and uh contention and strife and violence and lust and all this stuff uh the filth that's pushed out through the media if that's what you're feeding on, and then you're going to come and hear a 60-minute sermon a couple of times a week and think that you're going to be okay and not be fearful, worried, or anxious about uh, things that you have no control over, I have, I have news for you. Um, you are going to struggle to find peace if your diet and you're feeding upon spiritual junk food and filth all the time. You know, oftentimes I can tell what sort of stuff people are into by their language and by their conversation. You know, you, if you listen to people, you can kind of hear who they're listening to when they talk to you. Because really, none of us are original. We all think we're original, but none of us are original. We're always getting our ideas from others. So the question is, who are you listening to? Whose voices are you heeding? Whose voices are you entertaining? Whose voices are you listening to? Because that is going to make you who you are. It's going to make you who you are. 
You know, people didn't just start out as Nazis in Germany hating Jews. They listened to the wrong people for too long. It was called propaganda. Hitler and, and Goebbels and Himmler and Goering and all of these Nazi leaders, they controlled the information. They controlled the voices. They controlled the television program. They controlled the radio programming. And they made sure that you only heard from them. And they, they, they just brainwashed a whole generation of Christian people. The Germans were Christian. That's where Martin Luther came from. The Reformation came from Germany. Some of the greatest theologians to this day are still the German theologians of the 18th and 19th centuries. Some of the most enlightened, brilliant, most intelligent people in the history of the world were the Germans in the 1930s. They were the most enlightened generation of human beings on planet Earth when it came to education and science and, and technology. Uh, and yet... They were brainwashed because of the voice and the voices that they were listening to. And it turned them into monsters. It turned them into beasts. They went from the most enlightened to the, to the worst generation, one of the worst generations in the history of the world. They either uh, participated in the genocide uh, of, uh, of the Jews and, and other political prisoners there in the concentration camps in Nazi Germany, or they stood by and did nothing about it. And they, they knew they were, they were silent, and they didn't uh, stand up for the rights of those who were being afflicted and those who were uh, being unjustly uh, uh, rounded up and, and summarily executed. Um, and so be careful who you're listening to online, guys. Be careful who you follow on YouTube and who you follow on the Internet because those people, those voices are speaking into your life, and it is making you into somebody. Find voices that are going to point you to Jesus, that are going to encourage you in the word of God, that are going to uplift uh, uh, the name of Jesus, that are going to honor uh, the word, the Bible, that are going to sing praises to the Lord. That, that is how you are going to be uplifted. Whatever things are true, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are pure, whatever things are right, dwell on these things. The choice is yours and the choice is mine. And there's so many voices out there vying for our attention that are trying to, to get us to listen to them. And yet the Lord is the soft, still voice in the background who's always there if we want to listen to him. He's always around. He's always available. Uh, but he's not the loudest voice in the room. Typically, he's the most quiet, soft voice uh, in the room. But it's the true voice. It's the voice of the shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. So if there's any, any of these things, he says, let your mind dwell on these things. You have to take your thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, dwelling on the things of God, focused on the things of God, drowning out the voices uh, of division and uh, uh, defensiveness and uh, argumentation, people that just want to fight and argue and divide and pit people against each other. Verse 9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. So Paul could actually say this at this point in his life. And he's not saying this uh, boastingly. He's not saying it braggingly. He's not saying, you know, 
follow me, listen to me, I'm, I'm the voice of reason in your life. He is, he is speaking for God. God is speaking through him. He's speaking God's words to them and God's word to them. He's yielded to the Lord. And because he's fully surrendered, he's all in for Jesus. And they all know he's all in for Jesus. He's suffered the loss of all things. He already told us that earlier uh, in this book, that he suffered the loss of everything for the sake of knowing Christ. And he says, and I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Knowing Christ, if I, if I lose everything, including my life, uh, I'm still better off knowing Christ than I was when I uh, had all this stuff of the world and I didn't have Christ. And so because he is leading in this way, he then can say, the things that you have learned, received, heard, and seen in me, he says, practice these things, and then the God of peace shall be with you. Paul would say, follow me as I follow Jesus. And that's really the only only time that you could tell others to follow you is if you are wholeheartedly following Jesus. And where you are following Jesus, you could say, hey, you know, follow me as I follow Jesus. Where you're not following Jesus, you'd be smart to say, hey, don't follow me in this because this ain't of Jesus. This is just my flesh, and I'm really just, you know, convicted right now that I'm doing this uh, in front of you, or I'm, you know, watching this, or I'm participating in this behavior, or I'm speaking this way. Um, we, we have to test all things by the word of God, of course. And, and we need to be uh, those who are uh, wise enough to, to test others in what they're saying and, and how they're living and so forth. Um, in other words, don't just let somebody come along and say, well, just follow me and do everything I say and you're going to be just fine. You probably want to turn and run the other way if somebody as a spiritual leader tells you that. You know, follow me. I'm the voice of truth to you. Uh, that's what Jim Jones did. Uh, that, you know, that, that's what uh, David Koresh did. That's uh, what Charles Manson did. Those are cult leaders, very dangerous people. Uh, when, when they say, don't listen to anyone else, only my voice, only follow me and do exactly what I say. You know, that, that's a very dangerous individual. Um, but if somebody's following the Lord, they love the Lord, they're obeying the word of God, you see the fruit, the evidence of the Holy Spirit in their lives, those are the people you want to hang out with. Those are the people you want to be close to. Those are the people you want to get permission to speak into your life because those are the people who are going to help you because they're being used by God. And, and God will use you in other people's lives if you're surrendered and you're obeying the things of God. He'll use you in other people's lives and God will use other people in your life if they're surrendered, if they're obeying the Lord, if they're surrendered to the word of God uh, in their lives. He says, if you do this, then the God of peace will be with you. It's not just about knowing it. He says, you have to practice it. So you have to learn this, and then you have to do it. It's not enough just to get the head knowledge and to get a certificate of completion that you studied through the whole Bible. You have to take it and apply it to your own life personally if you want the peace of God to be with you individually. Verse 10, he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know 
how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Boy, that would just throw a lot of cold water on the name it and claim it prosperity gospel, wouldn't it? <laughs> you know, God only wants you to be rich and happy all the time, you know, and, and uh, if you give me all your money, then you'll be rich and happy, you know, basically is the prosperity gospel. Um, and the only one, you know, rich and happy is the guy that you're giving the money to. Everyone else ends up sad and broke because they gave all their money to the other guy. <laughs> but Paul didn't know anything about the prosperity gospel. Paul wasn't there saying, give me all your money and then you'll be happy. He, he's saying, look, uh, put God first. Uh, I've learned to put God first. I've learned that in every situation, I could find something to be thankful for. I could praise God in every circumstance, even the bad stuff. He's in prison as he's writing this with a death sentence hanging over his head uh, that the Roman government is about to execute and take his life. And he's still saying, I'm content. I have joy. I have the peace of God. I've learned contentment in any and all circumstances, not just when I'm getting my way, not just when things are going well for me. You know, uh, everybody could be a happy Christian when everything's going their way. But what about when everything's not going your way? Can you still rejoice in the Lord? That's true Christianity, by the way to be able to rejoice in the Lord at all times in all things. That's true Christianity. That's, that's truly coming to the place where the spiritual is more important to you than the physical, where the eternal is more important to you than the temporal. If you're only happy when everything's going your way, you're only happy when you're always getting your way and only getting your way, then what difference is there between you and a non-Christian? They're happy when they're getting their way too. They're happy when they get everything they want too but they're miserable when they're not getting their way. Matter of fact, their world falls apart when they lose everything. Uh, and that ought not to identify us as Christians because this earth is not our home. We're just passing through this world. We're sojourners. We're just traveling through this world to get to the real world, which is heaven. Paul suffered greatly, but he also learned the secret of contentment because the secret is that the contentment is not in your circumstances it's in jesus your contentment is not in the things that you have it's in the personal relationship with jesus christ that you enjoy that's where you find your contentment that's why you could say i could be abased and i could abound and i've learned to be content in all things the secret of contentment in first timothy chapter 6 and verse 6, Paul says this to Timothy. He says, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering or clothing, with these we should be content. And so just, you know, the, the big picture, the 35,000, 40,000 foot level, he's saying, look, you didn't come into this world with anything like Job said, naked I came into this world, naked I will die, blessed be the name of the Lord. True for everyone who's ever lived. You all came into this world naked and crying and in diapers, 
uh, no teeth and no hair. If you live long enough, you're going to go out of this world naked and diapers, no teeth, no hair, you know, crying. <laughs> but, but the truth is, is that, you know, um, if we just have food and, 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 and clothing, you know, somewhere to sleep at night, that's so much more than so many other people have all over the world. There's no guarantee that you're going to have food and clothing and shelter. It's not a guarantee uh, in this world as a human being. There's plenty of people that don't have that. So if you have that, we should be content with that. We should be uh, thankful uh, for that and be content with that. He says in verse 9, those who want to get rich, think of the name it and claim it group again, the prosperity gospel group, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it or lusting after it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. You know, uh, riches make themselves wings, the Proverbs say, and fly away. You can't take it with you. Even if you achieve billions in this life, eventually you're still going to die and you can't take it with you. You're going to leave it to some spoiled kid who's going to blow it on drugs probably. And so uh, it, it, it is not about uh, what we have in this world, the physical, material things of this world that we find contentment in, but it's godliness. It's knowing the Lord. It's just having the basics covered. Uh, and, and with this, uh, we are uh, content. Jesus taught about this in the Sermon uh, on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said this in verse 31. He said, Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles or the unbelievers eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious or worried about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has trouble of its own. Seek first the kingdom of God. Every day put God first. Make his righteousness your goal every day. And Jesus says, and you won't have to worry about it. Everything will be taken care of. God will take care of you just like he takes care of the birds. You're worth more than many sparrows uh, Jesus would say, and God takes care of the sparrows, the birds, the animals, the flowers. He's going to take care of you too. You're his son, you're his daughter. You don't need to fear. Verse 13. He then says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and, and Paul could say that because Paul believed what he wrote. Paul lived what he's telling us here. And because he lived this, he believed it. This was who he was. He can then say, I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 15, apart from me, you can't do anything. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But... I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me because it's not my strength. 
It's Christ's strength in me. It's not my power. It's God's power at work in me. If I am doing these things, if I am trusting the Lord, if I am living my life for Him, then I could rest. Like Paul's saying, I could rest. I could do anything that, that, that God gives me strength to do. And if God doesn't give me the strength to do it, then I probably don't need to do it. He'll give me the strength for the day to do what He is calling me to do. And He will do the same for you. You know, um, there's, there's no verse in the Bible that says God won't give you more than you can handle. That's not a verse in the Bible. You'll hear it spoken. You'll hear it quoted. Uh, but it's not a Bible verse. You can't say chapter 1, verse something says, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle. But the truth is, is that God won't give you more than you can handle if you are completely surrendered to God. Because then you could say, I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's through Him. It's through His power. It's through His strength. It's through His um, enabling that then we can tackle whatever comes our way. We can accomplish whatever he puts in our lives to accomplish. Verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Paul is recognizing the generosity of these believers, the generosity of these Christians who went out of their way to make sure that Paul's needs as a minister of the gospel were met. And uh, Paul wasn't naming it and claiming it. He was not out there trying to enrich himself, not at all. He suffered tremendous loss and ultimately death for the gospel's sake. Yet he still had needs that had to be met. And God chooses to meet the needs of his ministers and his servants through God's people. That's always how it's been. And, and Paul is recognizing this. He is grateful for their generosity that they have uh, financially helped to underwrite his ministry and to meet the needs for his uh, provision for his life. Um, and, and he says, you know, not everybody did that. He says, as a matter of fact, no other church was, was sharing with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. You know, every work of God, every ministry of God um, has to have that undergirding of other people supporting that ministry with their finances. Otherwise, you don't have a ministry and you don't have a minister because all your ministers are going to go back to work in the secular world because they have to pay for their bills and they have to pay for their families and so forth. And there's nobody left to pastor a church or to go out in the mission field. If, if you've got to go to work every day to take care of all of your own physical needs and the needs of your family, uh, who's freed up to do the work of God as a full-time occupation? And so it's very practical uh, matter of fact, on Sunday, I don't want to scare you, but Sunday we're going to look at tithing. So, and I'll, you know, uh, hopefully enlighten and educate us on what tithing is and what it's not. And what a blessing it is for us as God's people to be able to partake in and partner with God in His work through our giving. It's actually one of the easiest things we could do to lay up treasure in heaven is to give financially 
to ministries where God is working through that ministry. You don't even have to, you know, get up early. You don't have to stay late. You don't have to, you know, go and change diapers in a nursery. You don't have to know how to play a musical instrument and rehearse. You don't have to, you know, prepare Bible studies and sermons. And yet you have a, 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 you're a partaker. You have a part in that church, in that ministry, with that mission uh, overseas because they couldn't do that. We couldn't do this without people financing and underwriting and undergirding the ministry with their giving. So it's, it, it's actually um, a, a tremendous joy to be able to uh, uh, give to the, to the work of God and know that my gift uh, is, is, is part of how God is accomplishing his work here. Um, Pastor Osborne, one of my dear friends who, who you know from Africa, um, we still send our tithes to, to his family to help with his family and the orphanage uh, in Africa. As a church, we tithe. And, and, um, and his wife always sends me those beautiful text messages uh, to thank us for our prayers and our love and our financial support. And I always tell her, and I tell Pastor Osborne, it is my joy that we get to do this as a church. It's a privilege that we have a part in what he's doing halfway around the world Casting out demons out of witch doctors and people that are participating in animal and human sacrifice and coming to know Jesus Christ, setting captives free from darkness, leading children to Christ, starting orphanages, you know, uh, raising up children in the ways of the Lord so that they could go on to become scientists and doctors and nurses uh, as Christians affecting East Africa. And we get to be a part of that. Just by giving a little bit of, our, of the money that comes in here to support them? And the answer is yes, we get to be a part of that. It is a joy to be able to give to the Lord's work and to know that we are laying up treasure in heaven and we're helping to accomplish the Great Commission here on this earth. Verse 17, he says, Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Paul understood this. It wasn't about Paul getting rich. He certainly wasn't getting rich out of the ministry. Uh, he was getting poor. But, it, you know, he had to pay for travels and so forth and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, food and, and, and clothing and shelter and things like this. And, and Paul is saying, um, I, am, I am happy to see the profit which increases to your account. Because can you imagine the mansions in heaven for these people that underwrote Paul the Apostle's earthly ministry? They probably have the coolest, most beautiful mansions in all of heaven. Because they were the ones that made this possible for Paul to preach the gospel all over the world and to write half of the New Testament for us. Verse 18. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And so he's, he's saying, you know what? I have all my needs met, and you are part of the reason why. And then he says, and, verse 19, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Why could Paul say this so definitively? Because he knew their hearts. He knew that, that they were the hearts of good stewards and generous people and people who are good stewards of, of money. God's going to give them more money because he knows he could trust them with more money. 
because it's, we're just stewards of everything we have, our time, our treasure, and our talents. And because they were uh, single-minded about the gospel and about getting the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ out, he says, I know this, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Interesting that uh, he mentions here the saints. These are not, uh, you know, Saint Joseph or Saint Justin or Saint Mary that some church has determined this person now is a saint and they are sanctified by the church. No, anyone who is a Christian is a saint according to the New Testament. You don't need some church to recognize you because you've performed miracles or because you've given your life to serve the poor in India or something like this, even though those things are great. You are a saint if you are a born-again Christian and a believer in Jesus Christ. He says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household, indicating that he was leading some of Caesar's household to Christ, the one who had imprisoned him, Nero, the mad emperor of Rome, uh, he was leading Caesar's household to Christ because they were chained to him in the prison. And they, you know, they couldn't stop him from ministering to these guards, these Praetorian guards, uh, these exclusive, like you know, uh, uh, top secret special forces of the of, of the Roman Empire. Paul was with him twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, and he was leading them all to Christ. And he says, "Yeah, and all the people from Caesar's household say hi. You know, the saints from Caesar's household greet you too. Uh, wonderful, wonderful." Uh, book here and such an encouraging book uh, for all of us to keep our eyes on Jesus. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, email us at coahpodcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church to Hatchaby, California.